Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1244. How many lies before you belong to the lies? Part 17. This is being recorded on May 9th of the year 2022. Uh, before we get into the main body of the program, uh, several links. These links are at the top of each written for the record description. I turn each one of these programs into a long article link description so that listeners can examine the printed sources upon which my lines of argument are based for themselves. There also are food for thought posts at the <clears throat> left in the upper left hand side of the front page of the Spitfire list dot com website. That's also where the uh, for the record descriptions are as well. Now at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there are links. One of those links will enable you to obtain the podcasts, so if podcasts are the best way for you to absorb before the record, and with our ever-evolving media landscape, that is increasingly the case, WFMU Sister Station, WFMU is podcasting for the record. Another one of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terrafractal, some of which are made by other intelligent listeners. And uh, increasingly with uh, all of the things that are going on and with everything going completely to hell, uh, I would recommend subscribing to those comments. Uh, for example, uh, USAID, a very common cover for intelligence activities, has not only been uh, helping with Elon Musk's uh, uh, Space Link, or Starlink, excuse me, uh, satellites, but also with uh, the implementation of those satellites in Ukraine, and apparently in connection with the war effort there. That is the, uh, the Ukrainian side. Uh, that is quite, that is a significant factor in and of itself. Uh, time permitting, we will get to that, but uh, there is so much going on. Another of those links will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work upon it, uh, roughly 43 years worth of broadcasting and writing. Basically, everything that is on the SpitfireList.com website is on the flash drive. There is also a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files, and that you can obtain that for a very small tax-deductible contribution. Uh, I get no money whatsoever from that. The fourth link will give you access to the Patreon page that I'm doing. Uh, that continues to evolve. Well, what we're doing now, uh, the transcription software to transcribe the audio recordings that I have been doing just wasn't 
precise enough to permit uh, timely editing. So we're scrapping the transcriptions, and instead we're doing three one-hour shows, and uh, also we will be doing, uh, when the technology has been uh, mastered by all parties, we will be doing uh, every other week a Zoom Q&A session. I'm also going to be writing some articles. Uh, these will not be like the food for thought articles, but the real you know, honest-to-God, expository writing-type articles with footnotes, etc. I want to <coughs> counsel patience. Uh, some of these things are going to take time to develop, but it is working out well. The presentation is much less formal and pedantic than the For the Record shows, so I think that it will be, they are, easier for most people to come to terms with. Uh, there is still a large degree of overlap with the For the Record programs and with the documentary information on the SpitfireList.com website. And uh, that that is a point that needs to be made. Um, we will be very shortly wrapping up the fourth one-hour program dealing with COVID-19, and I think those people who have followed the BioPsyOp Apocalypse series <clears throat> morphing into the Oswald Institute of Virology will uh, find that to be useful, and I think perhaps easier to absorb than that long, 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 very pedantic format. So uh, by way of supplementing the information that is available and hopefully making it uh, more easily assimilatable to coin the term, uh, the Patreon site will be doing that. Now, uh, the title of the program, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lies, uh, is taken from a quote in the autobiography of the late brilliant political comedian Mort Saul. Uh, Mort Saul also was one of New Orleans' D.A. Jim Garrison's investigators when he was looking into the assassination, not looking into, but investigating the assassination of JFK. And increasingly, as the <coughs> Orwellian manifestation of the Ukraine war and its attendant coverage and a phenomenon that is both Orwellian and I think uh, clinically psychotic is embracing the West and its institutions and an awful lot of the people involved in it. I think that Mort Saul's observation, how many lies, in other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lies? And that is indeed a question that an awful lot of people, I think, uh, would do well to answer. This is a society that has gone right off the deep end, and uh, the institutions and the individuals in it, most of them, have their heads lodged securely up their Azovs. So uh, I, I am not at all optimistic. I think the possibilities of a nuclear war uh, are increasingly large, and I am extremely pessimistic. Uh, what we're going to be doing in the next three or four programs is presenting information 
from a highly qualified professional intelligence officer from Switzerland named Jacques Beau, last name B-A-U-D. Uh, I want to give a very strong caveat. The interviews have been reprinted in English. They were originally in French, but in English they have been published by a magazine called The Postal, P-O-S-T-I-L. Uh, that has an awful lot of information that I would uh, well, give an emphatic caveat about. They had future books like uh, by Ernst Jünger, Oswald Spangler, two uh, key contributors, also Carl Schmidt, contributors to what was known as the Conservative Revolution in Germany. Uh, many of those books, I think, could be accurately described as proto-fascistic. And uh, they have done articles, for example, exculpatory of Francisco Franco. Uh, so, again, an emphatic caveat about the postal. However, uh, there is an old expression, uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And uh, the emphatic caveats notwithstanding, uh, I think the postal has done us a great service in presenting the information by Jacques Beau. I've also seen uh, information uh, allegedly from him that uh, I didn't think much of, but yeah, I also have found the sources themselves to be uh, dubious. However, he is an individual with impeccable credentials to talk about the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I'm going to read some of his qualifications, and the perspective that he gives, I think, is essential. What I think I'm going to do is read two articles by him in the first two programs, and then an interview that the Postal Magazine did with Jacques Beau, and then do a fourth program breaking down some of the key points. And I, I don't think the importance of Jacques Beau's contributions could be exaggerated. Uh, one of the reasons I am, frankly, terrified, I think we're in a situation uh, very similar to the run up to World War One, And uh, the big difference, of course, is that uh, the warring empires of that war did not have nuclear weapons, and uh, the nuclear age has dawned upon us a long time ago. And I think we may very well be sleepwalking into a nuclear holocaust. One of the points <clears throat> that Jacques Beau makes is that the coverage of the war by our media, the decisions and the pronouncements that are made by politicians in the West are fundamentally divorced from reality. And beyond that, as an intelligence professional, he is noting that the media coverage and the political decision-making and pronouncements are completely divorced from good intelligence analysis. He himself was deeply involved with the situation in Ukraine and presents us with a perspective that is fundamentally different from what we are being told, including what is going on in the battlefield. I have noted that what I can 
verify on my own, mainly the uh, assertions, absolutely valid and extensively documented, that the government of Ukraine is, is Nazi in its essence. It is governed by the OUNB successor organizations that came to power during the Maidan coup. Uh, I can verify that and have, in fact, documented that exhaustively for years, and yet that is right down the Orwellian memory hole. We're being told, oh, that is ridiculous, and that's Putin's propaganda, etc. No, it isn't. I have been really frustrated by the inability to get uh, valid battlefield coverage, and I think that that is extremely dangerous because the narrative that is being advanced in the West, which is that Russia's military is incompetent and the Ukrainians are winning, etc., etc., plus the uncritical acceptance of probable false flags in Mariupol with the uh, drama theater and the hospital, the attack on the Kramatorsk train station and others. Uh, I think the possibilities of a big false flag operation allegedly to give Russia a win that they are not winning and being used to justify uh, full-fledged NATO involvement are enormous. And that is why I think that uh, this could lead to World War III. Suffice it to say that the phenomenon of war in Ukraine is fundamentally different from what we have been told, and among the things that is fundamentally different concerns the military situation. We'll get to that uh, presently. Uh, suffice it to say that Ukraine is not winning, and the understanding in the West is fundamentally wrong. Now, first of all, we're going to read an article that was republished by the Postal Magazine, that's P-O-S-T-I-L, with the caveats that I have emphatically presented. Uh, the Postal Magazine of April 1st of 2022 had an article by Jacques Bogue and B-A-U-B, The Military Situation in Ukraine. Now, his qualifications. <clears throat> Jacques Bogue is a former, former colonel of the general staff, ex-member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Specialist on Eastern countries. Uh, by the way, this article is translated from the French, so if some of the verbiage is a little bit clumsy, there is a reason for that. One more time. Jacques Beau is a former colonel of the general staff, ex-member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence, specialist on Eastern countries. He was trained in the American and British intelligence services. He has served as policy chief for United Nations peacekeeping operations, as, an, as a UN expert on rule of law and security institutions. He designed and led the first multidimensional UN intelligence unit in the Sudan. He has worked for the African Union and was for five years responsible for the fight at NATO against the proliferation of small arms. He was involved in discussions with the highest Russian military and intelligence officials just after the fall of the USSR. Within NATO, he followed the 2014 Ukrainian crisis and later participated in programs to assist the Ukraine. Again, we're going to look at that in more detail. He was involved in the training of the Ukrainian Army and Defense 
forces and has a first-hand and expert acquaintance with the dynamics there, and they are fundamentally different from what we have been told. Uh, more about Jacques Beau. He is the author of several books on intelligence, war, and terrorism. He also published a book about uh, Putin in 2021. Actually, that may be out this year, 2022. Uh, in any event, uh, we are going to read his analysis and uh, this first section, again, the article, The Military Situation in Ukraine by Jacques Beau from the Postal, republished by the Postal from April 1st of 2022. The first part of the article is called Part 1, The Road to War. Now, I would note that uh, Jacques Beau does not discuss the move by Ukraine to nullify the Budapest Accords and to acquire nuclear weapons. It also does not discuss the biological warfare program that was apparently uncovered after the Russian invasion. I suspect they knew about that before, and that was one of the reasons that Putin decided to move. Also, <clears throat> does not discuss uh, the situation that I believe has taken place, which is that the war was deliberately triggered in order to lure in Russia, and the ultimate ga- the goal of the West is regime change in Moscow. That may have seemed like a bit of a reach when I first advanced that at the beginning of the series in at the beginning of March doesn't seem so remote now. In fact, uh, Biden has pretty much stated as much. But note again the difference between what we are being told and what Jacques Beau contributes. Part 1, The Road to War. For years, from Mali to Afghanistan, I have worked for peace and risked my life for it. It is therefore not a question of justifying war, but of understanding what led us to it. I noticed that the, quote, experts, unquote, who take turns on television, analyze the situation on the basis of dubious information, most often hypotheses erected as facts, and then we no longer manage to understand what is happening. This is how panics are created. Amen. Continuing, that, by the way, is my interjection. The problem is not so much to know who is right in this conflict, but to question the way our leaders make their decisions. Let's try to examine the roots of the conflict. It starts with those who for the last eight years have been talking about, quote, separatists, unquote, or, quote, independentists, unquote, from Donbass. This is not true. The referendums conducted by the two self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Lukonsk in May of 2014 were not referendums of, quote, independence, unquote, as some unscrupulous journalists have claimed, but referendums of, quote, self-determination, unquote, or autonomy, unquote. The qualifier, quote, pro-Russian, unquote, suggests that Russia was a party to the conflict, which was not the case, 
and the term, quote, Russian speakers, unquote, would have been more honest. Moreover, these referendums were conducted against the advice of Vladimir Putin. In fact, these republics were not seeking to separate from Ukraine, but to have a status of autonomy, guaranteeing them the use of the Russian language as an official language. For the first legislative act of the new government resulting from the overthrow of President Yanukovych was the abolition on February 23, 2014, of the Kivalov Kalashnikov Law of 2012 that made Russian an official language. A bit like if Putinists decided that French and Italian would no longer be official languages in Switzerland. By the way, they are, as is German. I'm going to reread this last paragraph. In fact, the sentence before it. Moreover, these referendums were conducted against the advice of Vladimir Putin. In fact, these republics were not seeking to separate from Ukraine, but to have a status of autonomy, guaranteeing them the use of the Russian language as an official language. For the first legislative act of the new government resulting from the overthrow of President Yanukovych was the abolition on February 23, 2014 of the Kivalov Kolesnyshenko Law of 2012 that made Russian an official language of Ukraine. A bit like it Putinists decided that French and Italian would no longer be official languages in Switzerland. This decision caused a storm in the Russian-speaking population. The result was a fierce repression against the Russian-speaking regions, Odessa, Dnepropetrovsk, Kharkov, Lukonsk, and Donetsk, which was carried out beginning in February of 2014 and led to a militarization of the situation and some massacres in Odessa and Mariupol for the most notable. At the end of the summer of 2014, only the self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Lukovsk remained. At this stage, too rigid and engrossed in a doctrinaire approach to the art of operations, the Ukrainian general staff subdued the enemy without managing to prevail. The examination of the course of the fighting in 2014 to 2016 in the Donbass shows that the Ukrainian general staff systematically and mechanically applied the same operative schemes. However, the war waged by the autonomists was very similar to what we observed in the Sahel, highly mobile operations conducted with light means. With a more flexible and less doctrinaire approach, the rebels were able to exploit the inertia of Ukrainian forces to repeatedly trap them. In 2014, when I was at NATO, I was responsible for the fight against the proliferation of small arms, and we were trying to detect Russian arms deliveries to the rebels to see if Moscow was involved. The information we received then came almost entirely from Polish intelligence services and did not fit with the information coming from the OSCE, the, opera, the Organization for Security and Cooperation from Europe, in Europe. Despite rather crude allegations, there were no deliveries of weapons and military equipment from Russia. 
The rebels were armed thanks to the defection of Russian-speaking Ukrainian units that went over to the rebel side. As Ukrainian failures continued, tank, artillery, and anti-aircraft battalions swelled the ranks of the autonomists. This is what pushed the Ukrainians to commit to the Minsk agreements. But just after signing the Minsk I agreements, the Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko launched a massive anti-terrorist operation against the Donbass. Bis repita, bis repita, placent, Latin obviously. Poorly advised by NATO officers, the Ukrainians suffered a crushing defeat at Depolsevo, which forced them to engage in the Minsk II agreements. It is essential to recall here that Minsk I from September of 2014 and Minsk II from February of 2015 agreements did not provide for the separation or independence of the republics, but their autonomy within the framework of Ukraine. Those who have read the agreements, there are very, very, very few of those who actually have, will note that it is written in all letters that the status of the republics was to be negotiated between Kiev and the representatives of the republics for an internal solution to the Ukraine. That is why since 2014, Russia has systematically demanded their implementation while refusing to be a party to the negotiations because it was an internal matter of the Ukraine. One more time. That is why... Since 2014, Russia... Actually, let me read the last two sentences. Those who have read the agreements, there are very, very, very few of those who actually have, will note that it is written in all letters that the status of the republics was to be negotiated between Kiev and the representatives of the republics for an internal solution to the Ukraine. That is why, since 2014... Russia has systematically demanded their implementation while refusing to be a party to the negotiations because it was an internal matter of the Ukraine. On the other side, the West, led by France, systematically tried to replace the Minsk agreements with the Normandy format, unquote, which put Russians and Ukrainians face to face. However, Let us remember that there were never any Russian troops in the Donbass before 23rd and 24th of February of 2022. Moreover, OSCE observers have never observed the slightest trace of Russian units operating in the Donbass. For example, the U.S. intelligence map published by the Washington Post on December 3rd of 2021 does not show Russian troops in the Donbass. In October of 2015, Vazel Ritsak, director of the Ukrainian Security Service, SDU, confessed that only 56 Russian fighters had been observed in the Donbass. This was exactly comparable to the Swiss who went to fight in Bosnia on weekends in the 1990s, or the French who go to fight in the Ukraine today. The Ukrainian army was then in a deplorable state. In October of 2018, after four years of war, the chief Ukrainian military prosecutor Anatoly Matios 
stated that Ukraine had lost 2,700 men in the Donbass. I would note there was not a single combat fatality in this, but simply in terms of other elements of attrition. The chief Ukrainian military prosecutor, Anatoly Matthias, stated that Ukraine had lost 2,700 men in the Donbass, 891 from illnesses, 318 from road accidents, 177 from other accidents, 175 from poisonings, alcohol, or drugs, 172 from careless handling of weapons, 101 from breaches of security regulations, 228 from murders, and 615 from suicides. In fact, the army was undermined by the corruption of its cadres and no longer enjoyed the support of the population. According to a British Home Office report, in the March-April 2014 the call of reservists, 70% did not show up for the first session. 80% did not show up for the second session. 90% did not show up for the third session. And 95% did not show up for the fourth session. In October and November of 2017, 70% of conscripts did not show up for the fall 27 recall campaign. This is not counting suicides and desertions offer over to the, often over to the side of the autonomists, which reached up to 30% of the workforce in the ATO area. Young Ukrainians refused to go and fight in the Donbass and preferred emigration, which also explains, at least partially, the demographic deficit of the country. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense then turned to NATO to help make its armed forces more attractive. Having already worked on similar projects within the framework of the United Nations, I was asked by NATO to participate in a program to restore the image of the Ukrainian armed forces. But this is a long-term process, and the Ukrainians wanted to move quickly. One more time, because in terms of the qualifications of Jacques Beau to talk about this, having already worked on similar projects within the framework of the United Nations, I was asked by NATO to participate in a program to restore the image of the Ukrainian armed forces. But this is a long-term process, and the Ukrainians wanted to move quickly. So, to compensate for the lack of soldiers, the Ukrainian government resorted to paramilitary militias. They are essentially composed of foreign mercenaries, often extreme right-wing militants. In 2020, those militants constituted about 40% of the Ukrainian forces and numbered about 102,000 men, according to Reuters. They were armed, financed, and trained by the United States, Great Britain, Canada, and France. There were more than 19 nationalities, including Swiss. Western countries have thus clearly created and supported Ukrainian far-right militias. One more time. Western countries have thus clearly created and supported Ukrainian far-right militias. 
In October of 2021, the Jerusalem Post sounded the alarm by denouncing the Centuria project. These militias have been operating in the Donbass since 2014 with Western support. Even if one can argue about the term Nazi, unquote, the fact remains that these militias are violent, convey a nauseating ideology, and are virulently anti-Semitic. Their anti-Semitism is more cultural than political, which is why the term Nazi is not really appropriate. Skipping down. These militias, originating from the far-right groups that animated the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, are composed of fanatical and brutal individuals. The best known of these is the Azov Regiment, whose re- emblem is reminiscent of the 2nd SS Dostoyk Panzer Division, which is revered in the Ukraine for liberating Kharkov and the Soviets in 1943, before carrying out the 1944 Oradour sur Grand massacre in France. That, by the way, was a massacre in which all of the residents of the village of oradour sur Grand were herded into buildings, most of them in the church, and they were then burned alive. Continuing. Among the most famous figures of the Azov Regiment was the opponent Roman Putasevich, P-O-T-A-S-S-E-B-I-T-C-H, arrested in 2021 by the Russian authorities following the case of Ryan Air Flight FR-4978. On May 23, 2021, the deliberate hijacking of an airliner by a MiG-29, supposedly with Putin's approval, was mentioned as a reason for arresting Putasevich, although the information available at the time did not confirm this scenario at all. But then, it was necessary to show that President Lukashenko was a thug and Putasevich, a journalist, unquote, who loved democracy. Rather, however, a rather revealing investigation produced by an American NGO in 2020 highlighted Putasevich's far-right militant activities. The Western conspiracy movement then started, and an unscrupulous media, quote, airbrushed, unquote, his biography. Finally, in January of 2022, the ICAO report was published and showed that despite some procedural errors, Belarus acted in accordance with the rules in force, and that the MiG-29 took off 15 minutes after the Ryan Air pilot decided to land in Minsk. So no Belarusian plot, and even less Putin. Oh, another detail. Popasevich, supposedly cruelly tortured by the Belarusian police, was now free. Those who would like to correspond with him can go to his Twitter account. The characterization of the Ukrainian paramilitaries as Nazis or neo-Nazis, unquote, is considered Russian propaganda. Perhaps, but that's not the view of the Times of Israel. One more time. The characterization of the Ukrainian paramilitaries as Nazis, unquote, or neo-Nazis, unquote, is considered Russian propaganda. 
perhaps. But that is not the view of the Times of Israel, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, or the West Point Academy's Center for Counterterrorism. So the West supported and continued to arm militias that had been guilty of numerous crimes against civilian populations since 2014, rape, torture, and massacres. But while the Swiss government has been very quick to take sanctions against Russia, it has not adopted any against the Ukraine, which has been massacring its own population since 2014. In fact, those who defend human rights in the Ukraine have long condemned the actions of these groups, but have not been supported by our governments, because in reality, we are not trying to help the Ukraine, but to fight Russia. The integration of these paramilitary forces into the National Guard was not at all accompanied by a, quote, denazification, unquote, as some claim. Among the many examples, that of the Azov Regiment's insignia is instructive. In 2022, very schematically, the Ukrainian armed forces fighting the Russian offensive were organized as the Army subordinated to the Ministry of Defense. It is organized into three army corps and composed of maneuver formations, tanks, heavy artillery, missiles, etc. The National Guard, which depends on the Ministry of the Interior, is and is organized into five territorial commands. One more time. In 2022, very schematically, the Ukrainian armed forces fighting the Russian offensive were organized as the Army, subordinated to the Ministry of Defense. It is organized into three Army Corps and composed of maneuver formations, tanks, heavy artillery, missiles, etc. The National Guard, which depends on the Ministry of the Interior and is organized into five territorial commands. The National Guard is, therefore, a territorial defense force that is not part of the Ukrainian Army. It includes paramilitary militias called volunteer battalions, also known by the evocative name of reprisal battalions, and composed of infantry. Primarily trained for urban combat, they now defend cities such as Kharkov, Mariupol, Odessa, Kiev, etc. Part 2 of the paper, The War. As a former head of the Warsaw Pact forces in the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service, by the way, this is translated from the French. It doesn't mean he was head of the Warsaw Pact forces. He, it means that he was in charge of the analysis of the Warsaw Pact forces for the Swiss Intelligence Service. And, uh, so one more time. Part two, the war. As a former head of the Warsaw Pact forces in the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service, I observe with sadness, but not astonishment, that our services are no longer able to understand the military situation in Ukraine. The self-proclaimed experts, unquote, who parade on our screens, tirelessly relay the same information modulated by the claim that Russia and Vladimir Putin is irrational. Let's take a step back. The next section, The Outbreak of War. Since November of 2021, the Americans 
have been constantly threatening a Russian invasion of the Ukraine. However, the Ukrainians did not seem to agree. Why not? We have to go back to March 24th, 2021. On that day, Volodymyr Zelensky issued a decree for the recapture of the Crimea and began to deploy his armed forces to the south of the country. At the same time, several NATO exercises were conducted between the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, accompanied by a significant increase in reconnaissance flights along the Russian border. Russia then conducted several exercises to test the operational readiness of its troops and to show that it was following the evolution of the situation. Things then calmed down until October and November of 2021 with the end of the Zapad 21 exercises, whose troop movements were interpreted as a reinforcement for an offensive against the Ukraine. However, even the Ukrainian However, even the Ukrainian authorities refuted the idea of Russian preparations for a war, and Alexei Reznikov, Ukrainian Minister of Defense, states that there had been no change on its border with Russia since the spring. In violation of the Minsk agreements, the Ukraine was conducting air operations in Donbass using drones, including at least one strike against a fuel depot in Donetsk, in October of 2021. The American press noted this, but not the Europeans, and no one condemned these violations. In February of 2022, events were precipitated. On February 7th, during his visit to Moscow, Emmanuel Macron reaffirmed to Vladimir Putin his commitment to the Minsk agreements a commitment he would repeat after his meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky the next day. But on February 11th, four days later in Berlin, after nine hours of work, the meeting of political advisors of the leaders of the Normandy format, unquote, ended without any concrete result. The Ukrainians still refused to supply the Minsk agreement. One more time. The Ukrainians still refused to apply the Minsk agreements, apparently under pressure from the U.S. Vladimir Putin noted that Macron had made empty promises and that the West was not ready to reinforce the agreements as it had been doing for eight years. One more time. On February 11th in Berlin, after nine hours of work, the meeting of political advisors of the leaders of the Normandy format ended without any concrete result. The Ukrainians still refused to apply the Minsk agreements, apparently under pressure from the United States. Vladimir Putin noted that Macron had made empty promises and that the West was not ready to enforce the agreements as it had been doing for eight years. That is to say, not not uh, enforcing the agreements one more time. I should go, continuing here, I should say. Ukrainian preparations in the contact zone continued. One more time. Ukrainian preparations in the contact zone continued. The Russian parliament became alarmed and on February 15th asked Vladimir Putin to recognize the independence of the republics, which he refused to do. 
Again, the Russian parliament became alarmed and on February 15, 2022, asked Vladimir Putin to recognize the independence of the republics, which he refused to do. On, Feb- on February 17th, President Joe Biden announced that Russia would attack the Ukraine in the next few days. But how did he know this? It is a mystery. But since the 16th of February, the artillery shelling of the population of Donbass increased dramatically, as the daily reports of the OSCE observers show. Naturally, neither the media, nor the European Union, nor NATO, nor any Western government reacts or intervenes. One more time. This is key. Again, on February 17th, Biden says Russia's going to invade Ukraine. And as he, as, uh, Jacques Bonneau, but how did he know this? It is a mystery. I think he's being sarcastic here. But since the 16th of February, the artillery shelling of the population of Donbass increased dramatically, as the daily reports of the OSCE observers show. Naturally, neither the media, nor the European Union, nor NATO, nor any Western government reacts or intervenes. It will be said later that this is Russian disinformation. In fact, it seems that the European Union and some other countries have deliberately kept silent about the massacre of the Donbass population, knowing that this would provoke a Russian intervention. At the same time, there were reports of sabotage in the Donbass. On the 18th of February, Donbass fighters intercepted saboteurs who spoke Polish and were equipped with Western equipment and who were seeking to create chemical incidents in Gorivka, G-O-R-L-I-V-K-A. They could have been CIA mercenaries led or advised by Americans and composed of Ukrainian or European fighters to carry out sabotage actions in the Donbass republics. And by the way, in the uh, written description for this uh, program, some of the maps and tables uh, are included in that description. In fact, as early as February 16th of 2022, Joe Biden knew that the Ukrainians had begun shoving the civilian population of Donbass, putting Vladimir Putin in front of a difficult choice to help Donbass militarily and create an international problem, or to stand by and watch the Russian people of Donbass being crushed. If he decided to intervene, Putin could invoke the international obligation of responsibility to protect R2P. But he knew that whatever its nature or scale, the intervention would trigger a storm of sanctions. Therefore, whether Russian intervention was limited to the Donbass or went further to put pressure on the West for the status of the Ukraine, the price to pay would be the same. This is what he explained in his speech on February 21st. On that day, again February 21st, he agreed to the request of the Duma and recognized the independence of the two Donbass republics and at the same time, he signed friendship and assistance treaties with them. 
The Ukrainian artillery bombardment of the Donbass population continued, and on the 23rd of February, the two republics asked for military assistance from Russia. On the 24th of February, Vladimir Putin invoked Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which provides for mutual military assistance in the framework of a defensive alliance. In order to make the Russian intervention totally illegal in the eyes of the Western public, we deliberately hid the fact that the war actually started on February 16th. The Ukrainian army was preparing to attack the Donbass as early as 2021, as some Russian and European intelligence services were well aware. Jurists will judge. In the speech of February 24th, Vladimir Putin stated the two objectives of this operation, quote, demilitarize, unquote, and denazify, unquote, the Ukraine. So, it is not a question of taking over the Ukraine, nor even presumably of occupying it, and certainly not of destroying it. From then on, our visibility of the course of the operation is limited. The Russians have an excellent security of operations, OPSEC, and the details of their planning are not known. But fairly quickly, the course of the operation allows us to understand how the strategic objectives were translated on the operational level. 1. Demilitarization Ground destruction of Ukrainian aviation, air defense systems, and reconnaissance assets. Neutralization of command and intelligence structures, C3I, as well as the main logistical routes in the depth of the territory. Encirclement of the bulk of the Ukrainian army massed in the southeast of the country. That began for the attack on Donetsk. Denazification. Destruction or neutralization of volunteer battalions operating in the cities of Odessa, Kharkov, and Mariupol, as well as in various facilities in the territory. And then in detail, he talks about demilitarization. <clears throat> The Russian offensive was carried out in a very classic manner. Initially, as the Israelis had done in 1967, with the destruction on the ground of the Air Force in the very first hours. Then, we witnessed a simultaneous progression along several axes according to the principle of flowing water. Advance everywhere where resistance was weak and leave the cities very demanding in terms of troops for later. In the north, the Chernobyl power plant was occupied immediately to prevent acts of sabotage. Note the following. The images of both Ukrainian and Russian soldiers guarding the plant together are, of course, not shown in the west. The idea that Russia is trying to take over Kiev, the capital to eliminate Zelensky, comes typically from the west. That is what they did in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and what they wanted to do in Syria with the help of the Islamic State. But Vladimir Putin never intended to shoot or topple Zelensky. Instead, Russia seeks to keep it in power by pushing him to negotiate by surrounding Kiev. Up till now, he had refused to implement the Minsk agreements, but now... The Russians want to obtain the neutrality of the Ukraine. Many Western commentators 
were surprised that the Russians continued to seek a negotiated solution while conducting military operations. The explanation lies in the Russian strategic outlook since the Soviet era. For the West, war begins when politics ends. However, the Russian approach follows a Clausewitzian inspiration. War is the continuity of politics, and one can move fluidly from one to the other, even during combat. This allows one to create pressure on the adversary and push him to negotiate. From an operational point of view, the Russian offensive was an example of its kind. In six days, the Russians seized a territory as large as the United Kingdom with a speed of advance greater than what the Wehrmacht had achieved in 1940 in France. One more time. <clears throat> from the operational standpoint, from the operational point of view, the Russian offensive was an example of its kind. In six days, the Russians seized a territory as large as the United Kingdom with a speed of advance greater than what the Wehrmacht had achieved in France in 1940. The bulk of the Ukrainian army was deployed in the south of the country in preparation for a major operation against the Donbass. This is why Russian forces were able to encircle it from the beginning of March in the cauldron between Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, and Sverdlovnetsk, with a thrust from the east through Kharkov and another from the south through Crimea. Troops from the Donetsk, DPR, and Lukansk LPR republics are complementing the Russian forces with a push from the east. At this stage, Russian forces are slowly tightening the noose, but are no longer under time pressure. Their demilitarization goal is all but achieved, and the remaining Ukrainian forces no longer have an operational and strategic command structure. The, quote, slowdown, unquote, that our, quote, experts, unquote, attributed to poor logistics is only the consequence of having achieved their objectives. Russia does not seem to want to engage in an occupation of the entire Ukrainian territory. In fact, it seems that Russia is trying to limit its advance to the linguistic border of the country. Our media speak of indiscriminate bombardments against the civilian population, especially in Kharkov, and Dantian images are broadcast in the loop. However, Gonzalo Lira, a Latin American who lives in Kharkov, presents us with a calm city on March 10th and March 11th. It is true that it is a large city and we do not see everything, but this seems to indicate that we are not in the total war that we are served continuously on our screens. As for the Donbass republics, they have, quote, liberated, unquote, their own territories and are fighting in the city of Mariupol. 3. Denazification In cities like Kharkov, Mariupol, and Odessa, the defense is provided by paramilitary militias. They know that the objective of denazification is aimed primarily at them. For an attacker in an urbanized area, civilians are a problem. This is why Russia is seeking to create humanitarian corridors to empty cities of civilians 
and leave only the militias so that they can fight them more easily. Conversely, these militias seek to keep civilians in the cities in order to dissuade the Russian army from fighting there. This is why they are reluctant to implement these corridors and do everything to ensure that Russian efforts are unsuccessful. They can use the civilian population as human shields, unquote. Videos showing civilians trying to leave Mariupol and beaten up by fighters of the Azov Regiment are, of course, carefully censored in the West. On Facebook, the Azov group was considered in the same category as the Islamic State and subject to the platform's, quote, policy on dangerous individuals and organizations, unquote. It was therefore forbidden to glorify it and, quote, posts, unquote, that were favorable to it were systematically banned. But on February 24th, Facebook changed its policy and allowed posts favorable to the militia. In the same spirit, in March, the platform authorized in the former eastern countries calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leaders. So much for the values that inspire our leaders, as we shall see. Our media propagate a romantic image of popular resistance. It is this image that led the European Union to finance the distribution of arms to the civilian population. This is a criminal act. In my capacity as head of peacekeeping doctrine at the United Nations, I worked on the issue of civilian protection. We found that violence against civilians occurred in very specific contexts. In particular, when weapons are abundant and there are no command structures. These command structures are the essence of armies. Their function is to channel the use of force towards an objective. By arming citizens in a haphazard manner, as is currently the case, the EU is turning them into combatants with the consequential effect of making them potential targets. Moreover, Without command, without operational goals, the distribution of arms leads inevitably to the suffering of scores, banditry, and actions that are more deadly than they are effective. War becomes a matter of emotions. Force becomes violence. This is what happened in Tavarga, that's T-A-W-A-R-G-A, Libya, from the 11th to the 13th of August of 2011, when 30,000 black Africans were massacred with weapons parachuted illegally by France. By the way, the British Royal Institute of Strategic Studies does not see any added value in these arms deliveries. We will continue with the reading of this in our next uh, program, and we will follow this by yet another military analysis by Jacques Beau from April 11th, and finally we will conclude with an interview that the Postal did with Jacques Beau. However, this concludes for the record program number 1244, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lies, Part 17. This is being recorded on March 9th of 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.